This is Dot. And this is Lindsay. And you're listening to Inside My Favorite Manuscript, the podcast where we talk to people who love manuscripts about the manuscripts they love the most. Today we welcome art historian and librarian Sarah Burke Cahalan. Sarah is the director of the Marion Library at the University of Dayton. She holds graduate degrees from the Cortland Institute of Art, University of London, and the Simmons Graduate School of Library and Information Science. Her research interests include book history, material culture, the history of science, the history of illustration methods, and library preservation, and she has published on all of these topics. Today, she'll be talking with us about a genre of manuscripts that pulls together a lot of these topics, and we are thrilled to have her on. Welcome, Sarah. Hi, Lindsay. Hi, Dot. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we are really pleased to have you on. You are going to be talking about a type of manuscript, as I said in my introduction, that sort of covers a lot of ground. I've never heard of these before. So why don't you tell us about what what we're going to be talking about? Sure. Yeah, I'll jump right in. Um, So the exultant roles are called exultant roles for the first word in Latin of the prayer that they contain. So they the the it, it, they are were objects designed for a very specific purpose, a very specific occasion, um, namely the blessing of the Easter candle in churches on on the Saturday vigil of Easter, and because that prayer um, was codified really early in the medieval church, it almost always started with exultet. The whole phrase is like exultet turba angeli calorum or something like that. I can give you the exact text later, but it's basically like, let the chorus of angels of heaven rejoice. And then it goes into this whole lengthy list of reasons that we should be rejoicing because this is like the most special night in the Christian church. And then the scrolls themselves are, I think they're noteworthy partly because they're scrolls as opposed to codices mm-hmm. um, at a period in the, you know, the medieval West when when a lot of what was being produced was a book format as opposed to a much earlier type of format such as a scroll. Do you know why they're scroll form instead of codex form? Yeah, it's. I think it's a mix of reasons. You can actually see them represented in the manuscripts themselves in some of the um, in some of the scrolls. You can see the scroll kind of f- unfurling over the ambo or the lectern as the deacon is reading the prayer. And then there's been, there's been a lot of back and forth with different like art historians and kind of scholars of the material text as to like what was the like audience's interaction with the scroll as it was mm-hmm. being read. I mean, there they, they, we can we can get into it, but there's I mean, one issue is that like how much would the would the audience actually have been able to see, given that there was only this one candle lit in the entire church? But there but there have been people who've kind of compared them to like oh, it's like an early movie because they, like the the deacon is reading the prayer as the scroll goes over, and people can see the images that are being referred to in the prayer. But the question is how many people would actually have been able to see those? Um, but they definitely were very how do I they were very luxurious objects, um, very special mm-hmm. objects, objects designed for just one day of the one use one time each year. Mm-hmm. So you're talking about the illustrations or the images on the, on the scroll roll, what, which, how do we say it? In, in Italian it's rotoli. So, but okay. in, in English we typically call them scrolls or, or, or exalted rolls. Either way, it's fine. Okay. All right. So I'll say roll just because <laughs> yeah. it's easier that way. So images so it's not it's not that this had just a prayer printed on it or a prayer written on it this is actually a lot like what are the what are the illustrations that you're going to see if as you're going through the role yeah and it's 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 
a prayer. It's also a song. It's a sung prayer. Um, mm-hmm. So there, what you see on these rolls is the words of the prayer. There's typically also musical notation indicating, and usually it's the deacon who's supposed to be singing the prayer, and then interspersed with the text and the and the musical notation because the the prayer begins with "Let the angels rejoice." It often will start with like images of angels, but then it gets into all of the other people that should be rejoicing. So like the earthly mm-hmm. powers, the king, the bishop, the people of the church, let the whole earth rejoice. Everybody should be rejoicing. It sometimes will also be images of Bible passages that are connected with the liturgy of Easter. So sometimes there'll be images from the Old Testament of crossing the Red Sea, because that connects um, liturgically to the story of Easter. The Easter vigil, for those who have not ever attended one, and this is often, this is a case in many versions of Christianity, but certainly in you know, contemporary Catholicism can be a very long service because mm-hmm. you often will go all the way back to the beginning and kind of work your way up. So there's a there's a lot of opportunities for um, images to be selected for for objects like this. Probably the the main reason that I got excited about them when I first learned about them, gosh, maybe 15 years ago now or something, was just how many images there are of bees and beekeeping. Oh. Yep. <laughs> I know that's a bit of a curveball, right? But the, yeah. uh, there's, there's a reason for that because they're blessing the candle. And so they're working their way kind of down from, you know, hierarchically with the angels and so on, working their way down to everybody should be rejoicing, including, and we should also be celebrating the work of the bees and of the beekeepers who produced the wax that made this candle that we're blessing in our church tonight. There's often images of funny little medieval bees in the manuscript as well. So I'm I'm um, looking at one of the one of the links that you sent us before we started recording is to uh, a little blog post on the British Library site, and I've just scrolled down, and indeed here is an image of the beekeeper and the bees. Medieval bees are so, they're so funky looking. I don't think the bees looked any different, but the way that they were drawn. I know. And they often look like little birds. Um, And it's funny because like these were mostly produced in monastic contexts in Southern Italy. Um, So the chances are pretty high that like whoever was making these images would actually have been familiar with what a bee and a beehive looked like. They probably Mm -hmm. had them on the grounds of the monastery, but yeah, they often end up getting illustrated as, as sort of like little little birds. But the, the hives are often quite historically accurate. They don't look like modern beehives because that, that type of beehive wasn't actually invented until like the 19th century. So you end up with these kind of clay tubes or pots or other kinds of structures that they, that they would have been using to, to keep bees at the period. Mm-hmm. That's, that's really neat. So what you just said made me think of another question, and that is where and when these roles were made because it's you made it sound like it was sort of a specific place was yeah. were they made over a long period of time or was it sort of they were made over about 300 years and so the prayer itself has a much longer life the prayer right. and versions of the prayer is still being used in a lot of churches today and it actually predates the scrolls but this was a very local practice of like like scroll fever that kind of hit <laughs> in the area around like monte casino um like Benevento, this uh, this this area, all kind of about like fifty miles around Naples in the ninth and tenth century, 
And and these were not the only scrolls that were being made. Um, These are the ones I'm familiar with, but I know that there was also some other kind of genre of blessing scrolls that were being used quite a bit in that period. But these are the ones that seem to have taken off and they got copied a lot. And I think they're about 25-ish that survive. But yeah, the prayer itself has a much longer life, but the the specific practice of of making these scrolls to hold the prayer and then to use them for the candle blessing every year lasted about about 300 years in that area of Italy. That's so interesting. I wonder how something like that happened. Like, (laughs) you know, there's no, I think there's no way to there's no way to know, but it is interesting to think about. Yeah. And um, I, I, I know that, again, there are folks who've published on this pretty extensively. And I think there are some theories around like the prestige and history making that was taking place among like certain people in power in that area in that period mm-hmm. and kind of shifting power. And I mean, one interesting thing about scrolls is that they do have this kind of ceremonial significance that can maybe make a performance with them seem extra special and that that it might have in some way maybe maybe it kind of helped accrue kind of power or honor to the people who were kind of in charge at that period because they because the bishop would have been there probably the bishop is often pictured in the scroll itself like looking at the scroll it's it's all very meta like you can see it sounds meta yeah in the scroll show the bishop watching the uh, watching the deacon say the blessing that is actually in reality happening as the scrolls being used in practice that's very cool Lindsay. you're sitting very patiently and quietly do you have any do you have any questions at this point um well you mentioned the bees as being one of your favorite things Mm -hmm. is that something that you enjoy do you do beekeeping yourself or has it just been a fascination? I have never kept bees myself, but I have a great fondness for beekeeping. It's something that I hope to do at some point when I have a little bit more time. I think I've always just been interested in kind of the symbolism of bees and um, how they get kind of used and reused in poetry and art. I think I came to them through an, uh, an undergraduate class on Virgil um, and his Georgics. Virgil's Georgics is this kind of classical poem about kind of the metaphors and allegories of farming. Um, And one of the main pieces of that poem is about beekeeping. And there's quite a lot about kind of the the diligence of the bees and the hard work of the bees and the community involvement of the bees and the labor of the bees. And that shows up in, in these scrolls as well within this added layer of Christian imagery that gets added onto it. I can unpack that a little bit too, because going back to the classical period, there um, was a common conception that bees actually had like spontaneously generated. I think there's another word for it, like parthenogenesis, I think. Parthenogenesis. Yeah, yeah. that they like, yeah. um, that they didn't, that they basically had virginal births. And so as a result, they end up becoming a symbol for the Virgin Mary. And then the candle produced from the wax that was produced by the bees becomes a symbol for the body of Christ as well. That is so cool. <laughs> and like roundabout. I'll spend a lot of time thinking about and with bees. <laughs> over the yeah. That is, that's, that's very cool. Mm-hmm. When I invited you on or when, when, you know, when you filled in the forum, there were three things. I can't remember what the three things were. Have we covered all three things or is there still more you want to talk about? I think we've touched on a bit of it. I think certainly like one of the top, the most interesting thing to me, or one of the most interesting things to me is, is certainly the format that mm-hmm. like it, to use a scroll. Why? I mean, why choose, why choose to make yeah. a scroll? You know, I think a lot of the things that um, people use scrolls for historically have been things where you are adding to it over time. So you think mm-hmm. of like, 
genealogical scrolls or legal scrolls. You know, it's often lists or like maps or that kind of thing, like an itinerary. So this is something where that's not happening. They do get edited over time as kind of liturgical practice changes, but it's definitely a very specific choice when there certainly was an, an existing technology that would have been used more commonly for praying in church. I mean, they certainly had codices as well. So choosing to do the scrolls is very interesting. Some of them are just really long too, because they. I think the. I think the longest, if I've done my math correctly, um, is about. I think it's about like thirty feet long. I mean, some of them get really long. Um, That's very so long. It's, yeah, and it's all oriented vertically with you know a single column of text interspersed with images, and then the images. I may not have touched on this. The images are actually flipped in relationship to the text. And that's part of why people have speculated that they were meant to be this kind of like moving picture type technology where the person reading it is reading the words, but the pictures are oriented such that the person viewing it is seeing the images. But but when folks have, have tested that out, it doesn't quite work in terms of what somebody would be reading and what the audience would be seeing at that time. So right. it's more like it might have been kind of an idea that didn't actually always work quite that way in practice. So I think that was one of the main things that I was interested in is it's sort of like the format and the choice of that format and the use of like a tremendous amount of like manuscript resources when you think of all mm-hmm. of the parchment that would go into it for something that was only used once a year. It does sound, especially now knowing that the photos and the te- or the photos, mm-hmm. the, the illustrations and the text are facing in different directions. It It is like, he, you know, they'd be reading and, and, tossing it and as you say like even in the images and we'll we we have photos and we'll put we'll be putting these in the show notes so if you're listening you'll be able to see this but you know in there like putting it over as you read and and having it come down i don't even know you know having having studied medieval manuscript culture and medieval stuff you know it it might not even have mattered if people could see it Because what matters is the theater. What matters is that it's there and that you're doing it Mm -hmm. and whether you can see it or not. And I'm going to make, I'm going to make a a comparison just because it's on my mind at my place of employ, we have a genealogical role and I just showed it last week. So it's, so I'm thinking about it. It's 37 feet long. So it's also very, very long. And it is the genealogy of Edward the fourth so this was a, it was a pretty, com- like, I don't want to say super common, but it was a sort of form of propaganda yep. that the Yorkists were doing during the Warriors of the Roses. And so you start with Adam and Eve, and it goes all the way to Edward IV. And there are huge questions about how this role was used, because like this one, this one, at least, at least you have an idea that it was, yeah. it was actually something that, that they would take out and use. The Edward IV role, like, who knows? People, some people were like, well, maybe you hang it on the wall. And it's like, you wouldn't hang it up because then you couldn't. But maybe you did. Maybe it was still impressive, you know, right. even if you can't see Adam and Eve or you lay it on a table and that's a little bit more. But but this question of like, why? And yeah. and is it important actually if people can see it versus what is being done with it? Because that's what's important. That's right. the, no, that's exactly know. it. Exactly. And, and I, I mean, one of the people who's written about, I mean, if you, if you Google exalted roles, his name will come up right away as Thomas Forrest Kelly. And he's written a bit about just kind of the scroll technology, not going away in the middle ages, but just having mm-hmm. these very kind of specific uses. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it, and certain, and how do, how do I put this? I'm also speaking very much about like medieval Europe, because obviously there are huge parts of the world where the scroll mm-hmm. is, remains very significant and huge populations of the world where a scroll technology remains very significant. But specifically in kind of medieval Christian Europe, there's right. this kind of 
common sense approach that well once they got the codex the scroll was out right that was like right. that was that was the the you know the realm of the classical world and once we perfected you know the book technology we kind of moved on from there but it's it's not really true because as you say there are these kind of ceremonial uses that remain and i think that's maybe part of what's so interesting about these scrolls is that it's kind of this archaic technology but it also because it's archaic it adds this air of like seriousness or like being out of time or like being authentic mm-hmm. in some way. And the other right. piece I was thinking about with these is like, when you look at medieval art, sometimes you'll see the scroll. I'm sure you are both familiar with where the scroll is almost like a little speech bubble. You know, the most famous one is the Annunciation where the angel Gabriel mm-hmm. is saying, you know, Ave Gratia Plena to, to the to Virgin Mary. And I think maybe partly because the exalted roles were designed to, for a prayer that was sung aloud, that maybe there's an element there too of like, there's, they're kind of, the deacon is delivering this message and because it's a, such a holy and significant message on this most important night of, of the church year, that maybe it makes sense to have it done by scroll because there's sort of a, maybe an otherworldly quality to that technology. Mm-hmm. That's a really neat idea. I hadn't thought, I mean, I, I of course I'm familiar with like the scroll as speech bubble mm-hmm. in art, but taking it and saying, okay, so that associating that with a scroll like a physical scroll makes a lot of sense. And I just hadn't thought of it before. So I think it's really very cool. So yeah, and I think one of the other ones I wanted to touch on, which we already got into, was the the bees and the wax and that kind of mm-hmm. Virgin Mary connection, which I think is so fascinating. The section that is a praise of the bees, it's actually called that. It's like Elogio delle Api. And it shows up even when the, the liturgy changes, like, you know, a partway through that 300 year span when the scrolls are being used. But, you know, the, the language changes a little bit because, you know, word came from Rome that we're supposed to have a slightly different version of the prayer, but they kept mm-hmm. the bee prayer and or the, or the praise of the bees, I should say. And then there's a, a, just a lot of different little tweaks on that, which I, I can show you some of those images as well. Why don't I find the specific link for that? Because there's some very cute little bees. That would be great. I'd like to look at more bees. I've seen medieval bees before, but it's usually in the context of bestiaries, Yep, which is where I'm used to seeing them, but seeing them, seeing them in a prayer context. Ooh, yeah, aren't they great? Um, oh my gosh! I know, and there's all different types of beehive. Again, these sort of like typically these kind of tubes that would back it, in this period you would typically need to like destroy a beehive to get the honey and wax out of it. So sometimes you'll see these beekeepers in action in these manuscripts where they're kind of you know working around the bees trying to gather some wax or some honey. Again, they look like these little little birds in some cases, but they often the images also include the flowers. So at least they do kind of understand, you know, that's that's what's what the bees are doing is they're going out and gathering nectar from the flowers, coming back to the hive. There's at least one in there where you can kind of see a, a fire where they're actually burning it. Poor bees. Oh, I think I just like, I think I just yeah, opened that one. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Where they're basically burning them out, which unfortunately was kind of mm-hmm. a part of the technology back then before they figured out this sort of movable hive technology. Yeah. Um, there this is amazing. There's yeah. there are many photos. I won't I don't think I'll be able to include all of these in the show notes, but I'll, yeah. I'll include a bunch of them. The photos that I've included are primarily from a volume that produces most of the reproduces most of the exalted scrolls in facsimile format. 
I think that's another, I don't think I mentioned this when I, when I had proposed the idea, but I think one thing that's really interesting about these scrolls is they are, a lot of them are still in these regional libraries or like diocesan collections. There's, you know, there's one in the British library. There's one at, I think, John Ryland's. Everything else is in Italy. There's a couple in the Vatican, I believe, a couple in, the, in Monte Cassino, um, which is, you know, well known as, as a very historic location and library. Um, a lot of the others are more regional, like like cities like Troya and Gaeta and places mm-hmm. that you don't, aren't, don't don't always kind of roll off your tongue. And I don't know, you know, the full story here, but they've a few of them have been reproduced in you know these this exhibit catalog from a while back. There are some very expensive facsimile copies on the market, but mm-hmm. with the exception of these images on the British Library website, which again are not a comprehensive digital copy, they have some other digital images available um, on on the British of the British Library one. But for the most part, these scrolls haven't like been digitized or shared online by any of the libraries, at least as far mm-hmm. as I know. And so there, they, it is one of these things where. You know, for all the skepticism people can have about like how expensive facsimiles are and things like that, you know, what what do you spend limited library resources on? This is a really great example of like a facsimile copy or an or an exhibit catalog just being a tremendous resource for people outside of a specific region being able to access uh, materials mm-hmm. like these. I'm sure it doesn't help that the format right. <laughs> the format is difficult to digitize, you know. Right. It would be a nightmare to digitize. It would be an absolute nightmare to digitize. Yeah, I don't blame. <laughs> but I also don't know. I don't know that, you know, what the what kind of technologies. I mean, certainly if we had an original one here, we would struggle with it. And we actually have someone mm-hmm. who's a specialist in digitization. So that may not always, you know, not, I can't assume that every, you know, diocesan collection in, in, oh, probably in Italy would. Right, exactly. <laughs> and so that's why they end up working no. with these, you know, luxury facsimile producers. And mm-hmm. I'm sure there's lots of interesting stories there. So the, the facsimiles, are they actually in a role? Yeah, I, yeah, oh, I've got great. one over here because we do have one in, in the library where I work and I got that one mm-hmm. out and it's, yeah, it, it's pretty massive. I don't think we have, we don't have a single table. You have to push two tables together end to end if you want to get it out. <laughs> It'd be kind of fun to use it at a, an Easter vigil service sometime. That would be, you could practice like throwing, <laughs> throwing, throwing it over dramatically. Not, maybe, yeah. maybe not throw, I mean, I would throw it dramatically. Maybe. I know. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's so, that's so great. So I mentioned bees and beeswax and sort, sort of that symbolic connection with the Virgin Mary and Christ. There are some images of the candles in there too. And the candles are just monumental. This is what I was going to ask. Cause you say candle and I'm like, I'm like birthday cake. I'm like little candle, but no, these are like. No, these are, these are big, big candles. There was a reason for that. Like, you know, we still in, many churches have a, you know, a Paschal candle is what it's called. It's that big candle that gets blessed on Easter. And in churches where people are using that candle, it gets taken out on significant occasions throughout the year. So it does need to be pretty big because it gets reused again and again through the year. However, I will say that the candle that I see in my parish church is not nearly as showy as some of the candles that they have um, pictured in these manuscripts. And again, I'm not sure how much of that connects mm-hmm. to the reality, but I would not be surprised if some of them actually were this dramatic. They're very kind of extra. I, I think I titled the yeah. folder Big Candles because <laughs> they're like, you yeah, did. they have, um, it looks like they've <laughs> been, um, you know, some of them have been decorated. Some of them, it's like probably a very big candle stick as well as the candle, but it also sort of looks like they've yeah. been kind of festooned with with flowers and things too, probably in reference to the, the bees. Very dramatic. I'll put these in the show notes, but they're taller. They are at least as tall as the priest. And this one is even taller and the person is lighting it and he's got this long yep. stick, yep. 
with the fire at the end, like he's got to, you know, he's got to reach up because he's, he's even down, down below. Mm -hmm. So lighting that is quite a trick, Mm -hmm. but it would have, so it would have, it would have provided quite a lot of light. I think more like it's almost, I mean, at least the images make it look like more like a torch Mm -hmm. than a, than a, what I would think of as a candle. Yeah. Although it definitely would have been, I mean, liturgically, it really, it would have had to be pure beeswax. That was really important. Like made of wax. Okay. Mm-hmm. That was really important yeah. for that um, Christ connection. And also, I mean, just practically speaking, a lot of other candle technologies would have been like kind of, I mean, they, they were used, obviously people used whatever they could get their hands on, but you wanted to use the very nicest thing if you were making it a symbol for the body of Christ. And the beeswax unlike a lot of other candle technologies would have smelled nice so that you know that you know if you if you pick up a beeswax candle and hold it to your nose there's it it has a lovely smell and i don't think the same is necessarily true of things that would have derived from like sheep lard or whatever the alternatives were i don't think no. so <laughs> but yeah i like that I, I just i i think i i initially had you know got excited about these and have come back to them periodically ever since just because of those images that that are as you say the rem- the bee the, the images are sort of reminiscent of a medieval bestiary and then the the beekeepers at work are sort of reminiscent of some of those like calendars that you might see at the beginning of like a book of hours or something where you actually see you know it's it's never like a documentary photograph right but it is like there's something there where it's like right. oh i i almost have this little window into the life of somebody you know 1200 years ago, right? Like that this, you know, this fellow's out there gathering the wax, hoping he doesn't get stung, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's the human element, the human element of history. Exactly. They're they're doing the work for the community and, you know, everybody kind of contributing in in their, their way. So you've mentioned a couple of times that you got interested in the roles. Do you, do you have a story maybe about how you, the first time you saw one or, or anything, anything like that? Yeah, I have to say I'm probably the first person to appear in this podcast who's never actually seen my favorite manuscript in person. I've only encountered them through these facsimile editions. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I have had the opportunity to interact with real medieval manuscripts, but not, not one of these. So mm-hmm. that, that will certainly have to be a, a goal for some time before, you know, before I die. But I think I learned about them when I was getting my master's degree in medieval art at the Courtauld Institute in London. And we were looking at a lot of Romanesque materials and I was just going to the library every day and taking things down and, you know, investigating different materials and kind of learning about the ways things were made and how they were used. And, you know, it's just one of these stories where I had, you know, this amazing access to an art library. I was using the Courtauld Institute's library. I was also going up the street to the Warburg Institute, which has an amazing library as well, and just kind of diving in. And I think because I was already interested in bees in this very weird way, I had just, I, um, I think the the seed got planted, as I mentioned, with that class on on Virgil as an undergraduate, and then just realizing that bees were everywhere through art and literature. And when I saw these little guys buzzing around and realized that there were so many interesting kind of documentary images in these manuscripts of like what it would have actually looked like to be a beekeeper in the Middle Ages, I I, I got really excited and much more excited about about the bees and the beekeepers, I have to say, probably than about the liturgical use of the scrolls. Yeah, I think I think that's what it was. 
probably just being a bit hippy dippy and getting excited about the <laughs> the kind of the making and the meaning and these little this little slice of life of somebody doing an agricultural practice that still exists today, although it's been changed a little bit. I'll say there's also there's another peculiar image that shows up in a couple of them. This might totally derail our conversation because it is so bonkers. We love bonkers. Yeah, bonkers no, I thought I thought you might. I'm gonna I'm gonna get the link. <laughs> You thought we might. I like that. All right. So these are the images of Terra or Tellus. So this is basically Mother Earth. Oh, right. Oh my. <laughs> yeah, and she doesn't. There's. Um... Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to explain what's happening? Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, she doesn't show up in all of them. Um, I apologize. There's one where there's like a there's not actually a map of a colored map of Germany under there. That's a bad image, but um. That was when I was unrolling our facsimile copy on top of some materials from our Ukrainian Marian collection on the table down in our workroom. Oh, my. Yeah, I know. So there's at least one version of Tellus or Terra or Earth where she's fully clothed and she kind of has this like crown of ivy sort of thing between two trees, very sort of staid and conservative. I see. Um, But the other two or three that exist in in this manuscript tradition, it's a full on kind of mother goddess figure where she's bare chested nursing a different combination of animals sometimes it's an ox and a snake sometimes it's a like it looks like a boar and a stag in one of them um mm-hmm. and it's especially distinctive because there's one where she's like you know there's she's juxtaposed i may not have an image of this one where like there's an image of mother earth and then like the very next panel is an image of mother church and so it's definitely one of these things of like, okay, the classical tradition did not go away just because Christianity had kind of taken over because that, that's a that's a direct through line to like classical antiquity and the goddess figures of classical antiquity. It makes me think of Romulus and Ramus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's it's interesting that it didn't get removed. You know, they, they went back and some of these are palimpsests and they went back and like, you know, scribbled out various prayers and changed the language a little bit but there was apparently no problem with, with the, the bare-chested earth goddess being in there the bare-chested so. earth goddess yeah, yeah. Um, and there's the, yeah. the one where she's um where, where there's the and, I, and of course i'm gonna i have to say this <laughs> we're gonna put these in into the show notes so you can see them but the one where she there's the serpent it looks like it's a serpent mm-hmm. and an ox mm-hmm. it also has the two trees which i think is interesting because it's sort of like clearly there's the trees yes. and there's the breastfeeding but she's like in is she wearing is that her clothes or is she like in a I hill she's like I in a hill i think she's like emerging from the hill kind of yeah oh like yeah. it's the earth and she's coming out of the mm-hmm. earth Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's and, that's, really and that's at the very beginning of the prayer, because there you see down below, it's the Angelica Turba Calorum. And so that's the very beginning where it's mm-hmm. like exult at, you know, the, um, you know, the, let the angelic choir rejoice. And then it goes right into, you know, let the earth rejoice, let the church rejoice, yeah. etc. And so, and so they chose to depict the earth. And I think it's it it is very similar to how you know Earth would have been depicted in like classical antiquity. But yes, it is a bit off putting, even inappropriate seeming. But then it's like, well, maybe that's just you know a contemporary bias reading back onto what the Middle Ages were actually like, where maybe it was completely okay to have that there. And yeah, you know it. Yeah, it's like this kind of you know maybe they wouldn't necessarily they wouldn't have, they would not have called her a goddess right but they but the idea that there mm-hmm. is sort of like a power in the earth was not foreign to the Middle Ages just like like it's not now um, and that power at least in the prayer for, of this that's in the scroll is attributed to God you know that the the power mm-hmm. is coming through God to earth but that earth itself has has a gener- generative power healing power you know the God's presence in nature. 
is really important. Yeah. So I'm looking at this at still at this one where where she's in the hill mm-hmm. and I'm noticing that although the main text so we I see the main text there's two lines of sort of large text with a mm-hmm. with a musical notation yep. that's upside down as I'm looking at the oh, image. Yeah. But, the, but then there is a, it almost looks like it's a caption yeah. underneath. It's yep. in smaller writing I think later. It looks much later, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it does look later. And it's right side up. Yeah, so that looks like maybe they went back and somebody was like, maybe trying to justify why it was there. <laughs> like explaining what I'd it is. To, I was wondering if you knew what this I'd have yeah. to go back and check on that. But yeah, it definitely looks like a later hand captioning the uh-huh. images. Um, and ditto the one below where it says Turba Anga Lorum, you know, with an abbreviation. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I see yeah. that one too. Yeah, and then, then yeah, but then as if you look at what's invert, what's actually in, in the reverse text, it's a it's a Gaudayat of some sort. So it probably, maybe not the first line, but a pretty pretty early on. Yeah, yeah. And I'm checking the other ones, and I'm not seeing the same thing. So it's that's yeah. just happening. Just in that the, might have been just that, that one. Yeah, oh, and they do. So they, there is definitely like a tradition. You can tell that some you know some were copied from others. Um, there are there mm-hmm. are kind of recurring. T- you know, types of figure and types of pattern and things like that. Oh, these are, these so weird. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, exactly. Right. Like it's, <laughs> I mean, for me, it's like, okay. So Hildegard of Bingen came much later. She was like 12th century and these manuscripts go back a couple hundred years before that, but there is this sort of through line, you know, she's this medieval mystic, you know, she, many, many things have many attributes to Hildegard, you know, com- composer of music and, and um, scholar of, of nature and scientists, etc. But she also like had this concept of veriditas, which not being a theologian, I'm not totally capable of unpacking, but it had this kind of like, she talked about like greenness and growth and like the healing power of God's presence in nature. And so when I see something like this, I'm like, okay, yes, this could be on, on face value. It's like surprising. Oh my gosh, it's a bare chested lady nursing animals in a medieval Christian manuscript. But I feel like there's also maybe this connection of like, well, folks, we're very aware of the world around them. And, you know, it's sometimes difficult to show in art, like the awe of that the natural world engenders, you know, like to like show in art, just how astonishing creation is. So that's kind of where I go with that. I'm like, okay, I think I see it. Maybe there's a, there's something, there's some sort of connection there. I think one of the other things I might've mentioned when I, when I sent in this idea was the connection to Monte Cassino, just because people may be aware of that monastery. It was founded in like the sixth century by Saints Benedict and Scholastica, who were both saints and siblings. And it's pretty well, it's it's pretty well known just because of the bombing campaign during World War II. So there are a couple that are still in the library collection there. And then there are more of them were probably produced for use there. And then it ended up at other libraries just through kind of the, you know, vagaries of, of manuscript history. So some of these some of these manuscripts have probably had some exciting lives of their own in terms of having to be moved in and out of, you know, the line of danger during various periods of history. I have a couple of questions, or I have one question, but I want to see if Lindsay has any questions first. Well, I do. I'm very taken with this imagery of the bees as representing this sort of divine feminine mm. thing with Mary and the wax. That's a new one to me. Have you come across that in in things outside of the exalted roles? Um, well, I think it is a, kind of a medieval convention. It is occasionally in medieval bestiaries. It definitely is in the pra- the exalted prayer, which exists outside of the exalted role tradition. And I believe it's in some of the like 
church fathers whose texts inspired the exalted prayer. If you go back to like, why, what, what exactly are we praying for? It, you have to go back to, I'd have to double check. I know Jerome didn't like the blessing of the candle. I remember that distinctively, like that St. Jerome, who I otherwise am very fond of because he's a patron saint of librarians, but apparently he was, he didn't think we should be blessing the wax. He thought that was a bit, a bit much, but I think some of the other fathers of the church were, were, were pro wax and pro bee. And I think it would, a lot of it would have been because of that connection, that belief that the bees didn't need to, you know, mate the way that, that, you know, most animals, including humans, do. And so that that made them... Oh, yeah, the church fathers would be into that. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, exactly, right? Like, (laughs) I I have a feeling, I don't know, like, maybe origin, I don't know. But, uh, (laughs) yeah, that that because they were, there was this, like, virginal connection that they could be images for Mary. So that is not exclusive to the exalted roles, but it is something where I'd need to check my sources before attributing it to any specific ones of them. But yeah. And then I th- I believe it's in medieval bestiaries as well. It's interesting because the language about the bees, at least in the Catholic Church, was removed at some point in the 20th century, but it's actually been kind of making its way back in, maybe as people kind of gain a better appreciation of creation and our place in it again. So for fun, while you were while you were chatting, I went to bestiary.ca. Mm-hmm. which is a website that's been around for a very long time, the Medieval Bestiary. And I looked up bees and here's what they have to say about bees, which may help even though the artist knows what bees look like. Mm -hmm. The the way that they're described is bees are the smallest of birds (laughs) and are born from the bodies of oxen. Yeah. So that, that is probably why they look like little bees. And that goes, and that goes to Virgil. That's right from Virgil. That's um, Bugonia, that's sort of spontaneous. Oh! Mm-hmm. That's like the spontaneous generation. Yeah. Right. Uh, so I think there are some different theories about how they how they were created. But I think, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, they are funny looking, funny little things. Guys. So my question is more about the, ro- the physical mm-hmm. roles themselves. And I'm just curious if you know since they were all made sort of in the same general area and now here's one at the British library and here's one at the Rylands. Do you know what the provenance is? Like how they got from Italy over there? I meant to look that up. I don't know with those two, but I mean, it's almost surprising how many of them haven't left Italy when you think about other, right. Other types of materials where, I mean, gosh, when you think of like, pre-Columbian materials or like the, the collections where, right. where so much of the cultural heritage and material culture of a given population is is in, you know, a handful of three or four libraries. Like, I don't think there's a single one in the Bibliothèque Nationale. I, I don't think there's a single one in the United States. There's about, like I said, there's about 25 of them. So I think, uh, yeah, almost to like mm-hmm. the flip of that is like, how astonishing that so many of them have actually managed to stay in Italy. Yeah. Yeah. And I wonder how much of that might have to do with this kind of, the fact that they ended up in the libraries of dioceses or archdioceses mm-hmm. and, and those might've been a little bit less likely to, to sell be them. sold than something yeah. that was in a more private collection. And places that didn't close. Right. So, you know, so they've just been there, there. for hundreds of mm-hmm. years and they're just going to stay there and mm-hmm. they're not going to sell them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and certainly not at this point. No, that makes a lot of sense. But yeah, I am curious about the about how they got out. Yeah, the other ones did. Yeah, yeah, and like the there was a another one of the many things I'm not an expert in, <laughs> but I'm interested in is like that the whole kind of you know material cultural and cultural heritage um, in wartime, and and certainly that Monte Cassino connection. Like my understanding is that the Germans and 
the allies were both trying to like paint themselves as like the savers of <laughs> cultural heritage. I mean, not getting into that at all, obviously, like that's the opposite of what the Nazis were, but like they were definitely trying to, you know, demonstrate that they were the ones who wanted to save um, this. We will take it so you can save exactly, it. Kind of exactly. Exactly. Right. And so, and so there were these various machinations to, to move the materials around and probably pretty dramatic moves of materials from one place to another with one person knowing or not knowing. And, and I mean, I guess, fortunately, no matter who was involved, the the collections of, of Monte Cassino were, were saved, even though the site itself was bombed to oblivion. So the materials had actually been moved out before the main bombing campaign began. But yeah, I think they, that like both sides, again, for better or for worse, were kind of painting themselves as like they wanted to have a legacy after the war that they were the protectors of European cultural heritage. And it sounds like Monte Cassino saved its own. <laughs> it yeah, I, I think I think, I, I think some of those manuscripts ended up briefly in like the Keat Shelley house in mm-hmm. Rome, if I if I recall correctly, like mm-hmm. they, they were they kind of were getting moved from one place to another. So they've had I'm sure they could tell they could tell some stories. Anything else? Anybody? Let's see. Well, I'm going to ask the questions I always ask. (laughs) How did you get into Mm. manuscripts? And if you could spend time with any one manuscript in the world, what would it be? Mm. Well, how did I get into them is probably the easier one. Although it's still a bit of a story, I think. Like, I I was just, I mean, I think I was just really lucky. Like, and I, I, like many of us, I probably suffer from some imposter syndrome. And so it, it, it took multiple people being like, no, no, you can, you're allowed to study these things. You're allowed to care about these things. Like, over the years for me to finally realize, oh, I actually can. That's great. Thanks. Because it. I, you know, like, again, like many of us, I kind of came at it from side a bit sideways. Like I, you know, it was, I, you know, I went to a very fancy undergraduate institution, but I like never felt like I could go into the rare books room. Like I never felt that that was a place for me, <laughs> but I eventually got a job in the libraries. And then I was like, okay, well, I'm allowed to be here because they're paying my <laughs> salary. So, and, and then just, I think seeing the people in the preservation lab. So I, I went to Harvard. And so my, my first job in libraries was at the, the Weissman Preservation Center. And I never had a real kind of talent for conservation work myself, but seeing the people who did was just like eye-opening to like the amazing long lives of these objects and the people who preserve them and the expertise that's involved in just such a huge variety of, of ways. And so that then knowing, having seen that, like some of the, you know, the folks who are just, at, who are specialists in conservation and preservation, it's just, it, it's mind blowing the, the things they can do in terms of like, you know, minute little bits of paint flaking off of a medieval manuscript and they, they get it back on there in a way that's, you know, reversible and sustainable and good for the object and makes it usable. And so just kind of looking over people's shoulders while, you know, I was mostly just making little clamshell boxes and things like that, but I was watching the people who really knew what they were doing. And they almost felt to me like the inheritors of like the medieval manuscript tradition, right? Because these are the, the folks who do conservation work on medieval manuscripts are the people who understand those objects basically as well as the people who made them, you know, like 700 years ago, however many years ago. And so that was that was just really fascinating to me, like thinking about how many little details there are, how many materials there are that go into the making of these objects. And that's true of book history writ large. That's true of material culture and art history writ large. But certainly like my entry point to caring about how books were made and who used them was seeing some of the really special objects that were coming through the conservation lab and almost more to the point, seeing the people who were doing 
like the expert level work on them to make them accessible and usable for, you know, the next millennium or whatever. So, so that was my entry point. And then I, I was hooked and I kind of, it took a little while to, to get where I am, but I kind of, I think I knew even as an undergraduate that I wanted to work in libraries or maybe museums, but probably libraries. And I kind of, again, took a little while getting there, but it just, it was, it was, it was the end goal, even if it, I had sort of a circuitous route to it. And then what would I want to see? That is a really tough one. <laughs> it's tough for most of the people who've been asked that question. Yeah. yeah. We, we've only had one person know, well, I know exactly what yeah. it is. Yeah. I mean, I guess seeing some of these exalted roles in person would be very cool, but I honestly don't know if, if I had that golden ticket to see anyone, is that the one I would choose? I'm not sure. <laughs> um, you know, I think I, maybe I would choose something like, I mean, this might connect a little bit to the exalted role, but when you think of like um, some of the encyclopedias or the bestiaries, um, mm-hmm. like Rabanus mm-hmm. Maurus and some of those like encyclopedias of, of like how the, the whole world works, those are the kind of things that I could see myself getting sucked into. Um, and I know there are some really fine medieval manuscripts of Rabanus Maurus, and the, the, so that could be really interesting, but I don't know. I am, um, there's a book of hours that I saw that's kind of a boring answer because, you know, books of hours, but like, I, <laughs> but there was a book of hours that I, a really fabulous book of hours I saw like um, about a year ago. So it was a medieval book of hours with really fabulous, just really exemplary images. Um, so really a, a very fine example of the genre, but it also had a lot of like early modern interventions in it, including like a, um, a recipe, um, a metaphorical recipe at the end that was kind of like a recipe for, for a good life. And that's something I'd like to spend a little bit more time with. That's a, a project I'd like to maybe publish on at some point. So that was something I have actually seen um, in person at the Oak Spring Garden Library last year, um, a book of hours there. But I would be delighted to spend another week or so with that with that book of hours and just kind of unpack what's going on, especially with some of the later editions and how that might connect with the kind of the object that it actually was and how the person, how the later person was using that book for their own prayer life. That's really cool. One of the things that I'm constantly sort of interested in and amazed by is how people in the Middle Ages and later to used these things yeah. at the time that they were made and then yeah. how they used them later, even in really different ways yes. and how it all sort of adds up to something really interesting for us now. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, because I don't even necessarily consider myself a medievalist these days. It's, it was just sort of my entry point to wanting to tell the stories of of kind of objects through time. <laughs> I think a, a lot of what I'm working on at the moment is more like 20th century material, but I feel like it, it's completely informed by a background yeah. in studying how medieval artworks were made and what that, what kind of significance that meaning had to the people, both the people making them and then like how they were used by the people who owned them. Um, and that those sorts of questions like are completely relevant to every era of yeah. object history, you know? Great. I hope I gave you something useful again. <laughs> yeah, no, this yeah. was really, this was really fun. I, this, it's, it's, it's just so rare that I get to learn about something that I don't know anything about. <laughs> so it's really a treat. Hey, oh, I'm glad. Um, I'm glad. I, 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 I'm yeah. one of those people I never know. Again, I think it's that imposter syndrome coming through again, too. I just always assume, like, well, if I know about it, then everybody else must know about it already. And they probably know way more than I do it all the time. And I know it's ridiculous. And I, I, I can step outside myself and see myself doing it, but I'm still doing it. <laughs> yeah. Nope. So I'm glad. I'm glad I was able to show you something. 
Thank you, oh, Sarah. Sure. Yes, it's fun. For coming on. Yeah, and thank you, Lindsay. It's always lovely to see you. <laughs> thank you. You too. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Dot. Thank you for listening to Inside My Favorite Manuscript. Please, if you enjoy the podcast, leave a rating or a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Our website is insidemyfavoritemanuscript.tumblr.com, and there you'll find posts for all our episodes and a link where you can contact us directly. We'll be back again soon with another conversation about manuscripts and why we love them.